Hey everyone, this is the Philosophy Junkie, and I welcome you today to philosophize alongside me. If you end up liking this episode or any other episode on this podcast, check out our website linked down below. You can find summaries and even transcripts for each and every show there, and also a link to support us. Visit us on Instagram and Twitter at the rate the Philosophy Junkie and at the rate the Phil Junkie. Furthermore, if you're feeling generous today, you can visit our page on Patreon.com/slash/ThePhilosophyJunkie and consider donating money for some additional content. Just a disclaimer before we begin, though, I would recommend you bear in mind that our journey won't be one of name dropping, but rather be focused on thoughts, ideologies, and beliefs. We will focus more on the what rather than the who of things. Thank you for choosing this podcast to fill your time of the day today, and I really hope. You enjoy the show. All right, we're done with the first two books of the Republic, an extremely important and influential philosophical text by probably the most famous philosopher Plato. Before we begin with the third and fourth book today, I'd like to address my plans of bringing on a co-host for a certain number of episodes. So, well, I had decided that I would bring on a co-host, and I'll let you guys know. However, due to some issues, we have decided to push those series of episodes to a later date, maybe right after we finish the Republic on this podcast. So, unlike how I described in the last episodes, we will be having just one episode for two books until the completion of the ten books. Regardless of when we come out with those series of episodes with my co-host, I received a lot of suggestions to make this podcast more relatable and less philosophical. Now, as much as today's society demands simplicity, I feel that there is a need to keep things well, like philosophy, complex yet understandable, vague yet easily applicable to the scenarios. Therefore, although I will not tone down on the complexity of the text, I will try my level best to make it easily understandable and give as many examples as I can to make it much more relatable. Before we begin with today's podcast, well, episode. I would just like to point out that the Republic moves in the form of a single book, which has just been divided into ten volumes to simplify it. If you sum up all the number of pages, then you'll probably get around four hundred or so pages for the whole book. Every subsequent volume picks up right where the last one left off. Similarly, this one, the third book, takes up right where the second book left off. Well, let's jump into it. The book resumes its conversation on the topic of censorship. They keep discussing the type of stories that were appropriate to teach young audiences who were going to become protectors or soldiers of the city of Athens, or rather, the ideal city of Plato. The type of censorship that is discussed here in the beginning showcases the kind of backward thinking that persisted back then. Socrates is preaching for a type of censorship that is promoting toxic masculinity on an extremely explicit level. He says that in his ideal city, he will make sure that no stories are told to young boys who will grow up to become men, that might make them fearful of death, get them excited beyond an extent, or make them effeminate. It wasn't just the idea of toxic masculinity being propagated, but also an idea of dehumanization of guardians of the city in order for them to be much more effective. How is that so? They decided to remove laughter from the equation. They removed the very act of lying and forbade mourning. Over a fellow comrade's death, because well, not only is death peaceful according to Plato, but also the guardians should be self-sufficient to not let that death affect him. Now, lying would be understandable, right? 
but even the slightest of lies like lying about a stomach ache to get a certain delicious medicine considering we're talking about literally kids would also be considered destructive to the state think about that now imagine such childhood does that remind you of anything some of you must have been sent off to boarding schools and just normal schools even with such restrictions and especially those who decided to join the force in their country would have had to face extremely similar circumstances so what am i trying to say well every educational institution today is a resemblance to this very system that plato generated how you ask 3 years before writing the republic plato began the first learning institution in the world the academy the academy is from where we get words like academia and academics when i said in the first episode of the republic that we would be studying actually learning about education i certainly was not lying the principles of teaching that we're learning in the republic are the ones that were being taught in the academy and if every educational institution in the world is built upon the academy that only makes sense that we would all be exposed to such a culture sometime or the other moreover until recently women were not allowed to gain education in, and this can also be attributed to plato as he is the one who thought that education is more important for men as they had to guard the city rather than the women this is exactly why a lot of feminists hate plato however a fun fact later we will discover how plato is the one who actually began the very notion of feminism through this very concept of an ideal city see this started out as a talk about censorship and now it has become a talk about well education rather it's more of a talk about how to educate they now come to a discussion on temperament and how it is important for the students or should i say boys to not be exposed to things like sensual pleasures and be obedient to their commanders then they present us with a story which would be a perfect example of the stories that must not be told to students while all of the gods and humans were sleeping at night zeus the greek god used to make plans and strategies for things but he used to forget them all when he used to see hera a greek goddess due to his lust such a story would depict the gods in a bad light and lead to inappropriate consequences would it not they were also opposed to gifts because while well, gifts are obligations right once you accept a gift you are obligated to return it in some manner or the other so it's not just about what story should be told but rather about what sort of poetry is allowed and what sort of music must be banned in order to make sure that the guardians are much more focused disciplined and determined to achieve their orders and goals this sort of education still exists when people go to military school or a similar establishment then they go through such an experience this clearly depicts the influence the republic or rather plato at large has had on the modern world after these poems and stories they move on to music they do not want the music to be aggressive sensual sad depressing or anything negative actually rather they wanted the music to be inspiring and motivating during war time and peaceful and slow during peace time they said everything must go except for tunes of courage and tunes of temperance they also have a discussion on what sort of musical instruments they would be okay with having as part of the curriculum the conversation was pretty important to them because the music was supposed to influence the soul of those aspiring to be the guardians of the ideal city of plato gymnastics was the other major part of this discussion gymnastics seems like a fair component doesn't it the guardians must be fit physically in order to be capable of performing their duty 
In order to ensure that they were good at gymnastics, they decided to put a limit on the amount of sweets you can eat and a limit on drinking alcohol. However, they realized that a perfect balance between music and gymnastics must be established. Too much gymnastics could make the guardians ferocious, violent and illogical. Too much music, on the other hand, would make them sensitive, soft and weak. One thing to notice is how they are not only trying to make better guardians out of those boys, but also controlling what those boys feel, do and express. They were trying their best to make sure that the boys would cut off from the world and were just determined to work as guardians and guard the city. You must be cursing Plato for building such a totalitarian concept of education and censorship. He is okay with the guardians being devoid of simple pleasures in life. He is okay with not revealing the truth about the gods in the poems by Homer and others. He is okay with seriously mentally ill people, those with intemperance and indolence just dying and doesn't want the doctors to treat them. The funny part here is that indolence, or sloth, is one of the seven deadly sins present in Christianity. So, it serves as a reminder that religion is not only philosophical in itself, but is also derived from philosophy sometimes. This also shows that inequality might be a characteristic of this place. What we seem to be forgetting is that the Republic needs to be looked at not as a collection of books, but as a collection of ideas. That is to say that one idea, although connected to the others in the book, can be taken out separately and examined for its relevance in today's society. The Republic is not really Plato's utopia. Remember, his vision for the society was complete in book 2 itself. What we are talking about right now is part of the luxurious city that is required according to the others at the supper table at Polymarchus's place. However, many take this to be Plato's ideal city and call it the Platonic city, which is incorrect. We covered Plato's ideal city in the second book. Now what we are building upon it is part of the luxurious city. Next on, we move to art. Socrates says something really intriguing about art. Here we'll cover the conversation. He says, We would not have our guardians grow up amid images of moral deformity, as in some noxious pasture, and their brows and feed upon many a baneful herb and flower day by day, little by little, until they silently gather a festering mass of corruption in their own soul. Let our artists rather be those who are gifted to discern the true nature of the beautiful and graceful. Then will our youth dwell in a land of health amid fair sights and sounds and receive the good in everything and beauty. The effluence of fair works shall flow into the eye and ear like a health-giving breeze from a purer region and insensibly draw the soul from earliest years into likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason. Well, that's very poetic and that sounds like an extremely noble form of training for the artists, doesn't it? Very ideal. In fact, that is why it is part of this semi-ideal city. That's why Socrates proposed this. One thing to keep in mind is that the third volume has a lot of Greek mythology and poetry present in it as we just saw, which might be a bit hard to understand if you don't know where they're coming from. Therefore, even I've resorted to not go to these mythologies, but rather look for the real meaning behind them. You and I are not missing out on anything right now, but the literary examples that Socrates gives in order to analyze which one is suitable and which one is not. In a city, even though these are guardians, socialization is a necessity, right? To make sure that that is taken care of, 
they decide to teach their guardians about the soul and teach them philosophy very predictable but yeah this would not only make the guardians better at their job but also teach them how to be humble and good citizens who are extremely determined to guard their state at all costs out of these humble soulful well-tempered and courageous guardians the best would be selected to become the kings or rulers of the state for this utopia plato was willing to go the extra mile what do i mean by the extra mile well plato was willing to have a myth in order to propagate patriotism and brotherhood you you're asking me how can a myth propagate patriotism and brotherhood among the laborers the warriors and the rulers well this is what we call the noble lie or the myth of the metals this is their discussion and i think it's best if i quote here they are to be told they are as in the people of the city they are to be told that their youth was a dream and the education and training which they received from us an appearance only in reality during all that time they were being formed and fed in the womb of the earth where they themselves and their arms and appurtenances were manufactured when they were completed the earth their mother sent them up and so their country being their mother and also their nurse they are bound to advise for her good and to defend her against attacks and her citizens they are to regard as children of the earth and their own brothers citizens we shall say to them in our tale you are brothers yet god has framed you differently some of you have the power of command and in the composition of these he has mingled gold therefore also they have the greatest honor others he has made of silver to be auxiliaries others again who are to be husbandmen and craftsmen he has composed of brass and iron and the species will generally be preserved in the children but as all are of the same original stock a golden parent will sometimes have a silver son or a silver parent a golden son and god proclaims as a first principle to the rulers and above all else that there is nothing which they should so anxiously guard or of which they are to not be such good guardians as of purity of the race they should observe what elements mingle in their offspring for if the son of a golden or silver parent has an admixture of brass and iron then nature orders a transposition of ranks and the eye of the ruler must not be pitiful towards the child because he has to descend in the scale and become a husbandman or artisan just as there may be sons of artisans who have an admixture of gold or silver in them or raised to honor and become guardians or auxiliaries for an oracle says that when a man of brass or iron guards the state it will be destroyed what do we get from this he is basically forming a social hierarchy that he will tell his citizens and base its foundation on a completely made up story now question the social hierarchy on in your society what's the proof that it did not start from some made up story or myth for example a lot of my hindu listeners will relate to this our social hierarchy has been formed by the vedas or holy texts they were completed about a thousand years before plato and they highlight our social hierarchy very clearly we get these vedas from our mythologies like the mahabharata and they are all based on mythologies themselves this there is no way for us to find out what actually happened the whole of mahabharata the text is even said to have been extended from just a couple of thousand verses to almost a hundred thousand verses just to give a better view of how society functions when it follows the vedas 
Mahabharata was like a proof of concept of the Vedas. On this note, we end book 3. Book 3 was a critique on art, poetry, music, physical training and on education in general. I think it was a reminder for us that the current education system is not a problem of today's authorities. It's just how it is and just how it has been for so long. One thing to see is that Socrates is not pulling anyone down here. He is rather philosophizing with the others. He is accepting of their opinions and not just presenting his own. Well, on the same note now, we will begin with book 4. Book 4 begins with a problem. What if the citizens complain of the life there? I mean, they're all doing different jobs, so what if some of them like their jobs and others don't? What if life really starts sucking for the guardians but the rulers still enjoy? Those kind of questions. To this, Socrates says, "Do not compel us to assign to the guardians a sort of happiness which will make them anything but guardians. For we too can clothe our husbandmen, which is lower class in royal apparel and set crowns of gold on their heads and bid them till the ground as much as they like and no more our porters might also be allowed to repose on chairs and feast by the fireside passing around the wine cup while their wheel is conveniently at hand and working at pottery only as much as they like in this way we might make every class happy and then as you imagine the whole state would be happy but do not put this idea in our heads for if we listen to you the husbandman will no longer be a husbandman the porter will cease to be a porter and no one will have the character of any distinct class in the state this line clearly shows us that they were very determined to make sure that every class in the state was separate in terms of their activities their professions their luxuries and their lifestyles this is so relatable is it not we have this in our society today as well The social hierarchy is so deeply installed in the very concept of a society. When we ask what a society is, a social hierarchy is a part of that definition that we just cannot eliminate it. That's why we all aim at removing poverty, world hunger, etc., and not the very social hierarchy that we exist in. Let's talk about money. A Socrates, Adiamantus, and Glaucon do at the supper table of Polymarchus's place. If a potter has more money than he requires then he would not focus on his art but rather enjoy the luxuries of life simultaneously if a potter had less money then he would not be able to buy the required instruments to create his art therefore a balance is required to avoid degradation of the quality of art being produced by the potter or any other person he also says something interesting he says let our city be accounted neither large nor small but one and self sufficing socrates or plato rather because his philosophy is now starting to seep into socrates's is more concerned with the unity among citizens rather than the size of the state that's why it says not large or small but rather one and self sufficing if the state is united and self reliant that state is a successful one Therefore the happiness of the state as a whole was much more important rather than the happiness of every individual in that state that doesn't mean that Socrates did not want every citizen to be happy it just means that they would be happy just not in the regular sense for us and even ancient greece happiness is often related to material goods social stature perks of a certain job etc however the citizens of this ideal city or second best ideal city luxurious city now 
would be happy because the state as a whole would be happy also now we can see a shift from the talk about guardians to the talk about society the state as a whole especially the social political scope of it they want kids to play games which are constrained by rules to make sure that when these children grow up they follow rules makes sense right this is a pretty simple idea but they don't want to necessarily govern the marketplace juries harbors etc socrates is trying to propagate the idea of that which governs the least governs the best so the children will have this inculcated in themselves from the very beginning but they won't be governed after a certain point in time he wants the people to be educated enough to realize the rules for themselves with this idea he says that the ideal city is complete now think back right now how did the city actually start they wanted to define justice and injustice to see that they created an ideal and hypothetical city the format of the city is now complete i want you to pause this podcast for a minute actually do that and think about your current city town state country whatever it is do you have injustice there if so how don't get political get philosophical which institution is unjust which part of the government is just what community is not appropriately acting on something think for me for you for the society pause this podcast and think assuming you did pause and thought about it if you think your heads of state your judiciary or a certain radical community in your area is unjust why is that so it's because you just can't get rid of it it is impossible to remove something that forms the very society you live in it's impossible to please everyone that's why minorities exist well let's get back to injustice and justice let's see what glocon who has been quiet for some time now has to say about this socrates asks both adiamantus and glocon to see justice for themselves now just like us glocon is furious he says to socrates that he should be the one telling them about justice in the ideal city that he has formed now socrates philosophized and now he must protect his opinions right like everybody else so he says that the city he has just founded with these two other people is just temperate courageous and wise according to him and those are the supper table he says that if a city has three qualities then it must have the fourth one too the city is temperate courageous and wise because of the education system that has been set up right therefore according to socrates it will be just too it's like a four piece puzzle where if you have fit the three pieces you know which fourth piece is missing glocon raises an issue with one section of these four pieces wisdom he thinks the city that they have made is too wise a city is wise because it has people wise enough to counsel the city's administration right in most democratic countries the permanent civil servants are the ones which make the policies and the politicians are the ones presenting them similarly in this ideal or luxurious city actually it is important for the council or the advisory board to be wise but what sort of wisdom or knowledge rather is required to be capable of counseling in sociological political and economic matters the conclusion from a small dialogue they have is that even though a small group of people the true guardians or the rulers as we say 
of the society possess knowledge to govern the society, it clearly reflects that the society has wisdom. These few people reflect on the society. Even though that sounds stupid, we all follow this system and know of it. We identify so many places with the wise and famous people that have come out of there. For example, India is known for Mahatma Gandhi, right? He was extremely wise, was he not? So people think that the entire country must have a lot of people like him, which is so far away from the truth though. But, well, people believe it. Well, now they had to move to courage. The courage of the city is reflected by the guardians and not the metal workers, carpenters or the rulers even. So, even courage is showcased by only a part of the society and not the whole of society. So, even if everyone except for the guardians are not courageous, the city would be called courageous if only the guardians are. The guardians will be courageous if they know what inspires fear, right? Weirdly, I think it's important to point out the concept of rationalism that emerges here. Rationalism is the principle of knowing something without actually experiencing it, but just by having knowledge about it. Fun part, the very concept of rationalism emerges out of the Republic, but later in the book, not right now. So, I think this was actually a pretty nice form of foreshadowing that Plato does here. When the city educates the guardians, if it makes sure that they know what inspires the right type of fear, the guardians would emerge courageous, right? They would know their way. Let's look at this metaphor that Socrates puts forth in front of us, which explains us how courage can be taught. He says, you know, I said, that dyers, when they want to dye wool for making the true sea purple, begin by selecting their white color first. This they prepare and dress with much care and pains in order that the white ground may take the purple hue in full perfection. The dyeing then proceeds and whatever is dyed in this manner becomes a fast color and no washing, either with lies or without them, can take away the bloom. But when the ground has not been duly prepared, you will notice how poor is the look of either of purple or of any other color actually. Then now, I said, you will understand what our object was in selecting our soldiers and educating them in music and gymnastic. We were contriving influences which would prepare them to take the dye of the laws in perfection and the colour of their opinion about dangers and of every other opinion was to be indelibly fixed by their nurture and training not to be washed away by such potent lies as pleasure, mightier agent far in washing the soul than any soda or lie, or by sorrow, fear and desire the mightiest of all other solvents and this sort of universal saving power of true opinion in conformity with law about real and false dangers I call and maintain to be courage, unless you disagree. I think this was a bit self-explanatory. So, let's move on to temperance. They define having temperance as being a master of oneself and knowing one's weaknesses and strengths. On this definition, they start finding temperance in the city. They say that complex desires, pains and pleasures are found in women, children and workers, basically the inferior section of the society according to Socrates. Here, it becomes clear that equality is not a component of this platonic city or rather the luxurious city. They consider children, women and the third class of the society to be inferior to the guardians and the rulers. However, 
They believe that this section of society showcases mastery of itself and is thus a good example of temperance. So, as this society has inferior people, according to Socrates, it is a society with temperance. Through the myth, however, they've made it clear that all citizens agree with their rules and the rules of other people as well. The rulers are ruling because everybody knows that they must rule. Therefore, unlike courage or wisdom, temperance is stretched out to the whole of society, from guardians and rulers to the craftsmen. Now we have the three pieces and their examples, do we not? We have courage, we have wisdom, we have temperance. Only one is left, justice. They start treating this as a hunt now. Socrates says, the time then has arrived, Glaucon, when, like huntsmen, we should surround the cover and look sharp that justice does not steal away and pass out of sight and escape us, for beyond a doubt she is somewhere in this country. Watch therefore and strive to catch a sight of her, and if you see her first, let me know. They then realize that justice has been at their door all along. He says that justice is doing one's work, one's duty. The city that they formed is based on the very same thing, right? People will do their part and help the society function. That, in itself, is justice, according to Socrates. Justice is not putting your nose in someone else's business, according to them. Now, justice is virtuous, and therefore it is good. Meddling in someone else's business is not good. It's injustice, according to them, and can destroy the city. Therefore, it is not virtuous, unlike courage, wisdom, and temperance. So, injustice is not working on your own thing, meddling in someone else's business, and thus destroying the very fabric of state. Reversing this, you would get justice as well, doing your work like you're supposed to. They, they say that a just man and a just city would have the same principles. It's just that one is at a micro level and the other is at a macro level. Now, they start reverse engineering this. They're going back to defining justice for one person by taking their definition of justice from a just and ideal city. For a person to be just, he must not have the other three qualities as well then. But does the soul have these three, three things, namely wisdom, courage and temperance or not? The rulers, the finest of the guardians that is, represent the intellect of the soul. The guardians themselves represent courage of the souls. The others, the workers, represent our soul's desires and appetites. Now think about this. Can you be mad and loving towards a person simultaneously? Well, you can say yes, but we all know that in a larger sense, you might love a person, but when you're mad at them, truly mad at them, you don't really remember the loving part at that very moment in time. Similarly, you cannot be two things at the same time to one object. It's like the Heisenberg principle. You can either know the velocity of a particle or its position at a given point in time. You know what's funny? Heisenberg, much like Plato, as I just mentioned, was a rationalist. This goes to show that philosophy of science is not just a social science, but also a science as it is clearly affecting so many different things that are a part of the core science. Wow, I detrack a lot. Let's go back. So Socrates says that the soul has either appetite or a rational component. 
If a person wants to make a decision, it makes the decision on the basis of either the appetite of the soul or the rational component of the soul. He then gives a story to prove this, and I'm quoting here. Well, I said, there is a story which I remember to have heard and in which I put faith. The story is that Leontius, the son of Agleon, coming up one day from the Piraeus under the north wall on the outside, observed some dead bodies lying on the ground at the place of execution. He felt a desire to see them and also a dread and abhorrence of them. For a time he struggled and covered his eyes, but at length the desire got the better of him and forcing them open. He also says, the moral of the tailors that anger at times goes to war with desire as though they were two distinct things. When the appetite to do something wins over rationality of thought, we get mad at ourselves, don't we? A simple example would be when we eat junk food. It is for our appetite and not because our rational thought suggested it. We do feel angry and guilty after having something we should not have had. So, they say that our soul is made up of three components then. Our spirit, our rationality and our appetite. This is how we are relating to the city now and I think I mentioned this just now. Socrates says that rationality and spirit need to make sure that the appetite is kept in control as it is more materialistic in nature and easily persuaded by the pleasures of society. Now, let's draw some conclusions. 1. Courage is just retaining one's spirit in pleasure or pain. 2nd. Wisdom is just knowing which part to control and how. 3rd. Temperance is just having a friend relation between courage and wisdom. Fourth, justice is being concerned with oneself, making sure that one does good and one does one's job without letting exterior elements affect one's capability to do the job. Socrates, in his ending monologue, says, But in reality, justice was such as we were describing. Being concerned, however, not with the outward man, but with the inward, which is the true self and concernment of man. For the just man does not permit the several elements without him to interfere with one another or any of them to do the work of others. He sets in order his own inner life and his own master and his own law and at peace with himself. And when he has bound together the three principles within him, which may be compared to the higher, lower and middle notes of the scale and the intermediate intervals, when he has bound all these together and is no longer many but has become one entirely temperate and perfectly adjusted nature, then he proceeds to act. If he has to act whether in a manner of property or in the treatment of the body or in some affair of politics or private business, always thinking and calling that which preserves and cooperates with this harmonious condition, just and good action and the knowledge which presides over it, wisdom and that which at any time impairs his condition, he will call unjust action and the opinion which presides over it is ignorance. With this long and very difficult to understand definition and some other dialogues that they have in the middle, we come to an end to book 4. Book 4 is where we complete our pursuit of justice and we realized a lot many other things about Greek mythology, education, music, wisdom, courage, 
and society at large but i want you guys to listen and answer me this right now are you still mad at your society if yes how 2500 years ago or so a similar society existed that means it's not a problem of today's age but rather the very concept of a society are you okay with not having a society rather than having a society which is so impure when looked at from an unbiased point of view something to think about is it not well i hope you keep philosophizing about this with or without me i'll catch you guys in the next episode